Hello everybody. I'm I'm going live again. This is going to be like a, another podcast episode. I make a distinction between podcasts and live replays. Live replay is really, you know, off the top of my head, unprepared. But today I have like a specific topic I will go through. Uh, someone sent me a, a series of a set of questions because they wanted to do a written interview with me. And so I spent this weekend answering those questions and I thought like, you know what? I could turn this into a podcast episode. Um, so I'm going to go through the questions and answers that I've written uh, before me. And I'm not going to upload the episode right away. I'm going to wait until the other person uh, has published the interview. Uh, Frank Paul of Lies Are Unbecoming from Australia. He interviewed me. And so I'm, he's going to publish the interview on his website eventually, on his Substack. Uh, I don't know exactly when he's going to do this, but I felt the need to let, like, since I read, since I wrote my answers already, I just want to go through, you know, my answers and uh, discuss, discuss, uh, you know, what's uh, what's on my mind because the the questionnaires, the questionnaire, well, the set of questions he sent me, really helped me structure my thoughts around Europe's future, and I thought. That's going to be very valuable. So if you give me a minute, I'm going to... Hi, the first people are getting live here. The course of the jewel lady. Hi. Yeehaw. Derek Valdig says, okay. Um, so background and philosophical stance. Could you share with us your journey and the experiences that have shaped your current philosophical and professional perspective? Arnold Katje. Uh, I was born and raised in the Catholic South of the Netherlands. I graduated from Wageningen University with an MSc in Strategic Management. Actually, I think the official title was something like MSc in Management Studies. And, uh, but I did major, I did write a thesis in Strategic Management. So I, sometimes, uh, you know, I just say it this way. But my studies didn't align with my personal development. So I mostly self-taught in political and philosophical matters. And since then, since I graduated from university, I've lived in several other countries besides the Netherlands, uh, Germany, Sweden, uh, Hungary. Uh, I've traveled, traveled around a lot. At some point, there was a year in my life where I spent like one month in a city, like one month in Berlin, one month in London, one month in Budapest, one month in uh, Vienna and so on. That was a crazy time uh, a few years ago. Uh, but it was also very, very uh, valuable to me. So I traveled around a lot, also in the USA. I must have spent a whole year of my life total, right, in, uh, in the USA on several trips, like a month here, then three months there, or always on a tourist visa. Just as a tourist, I went there. Right? But it adds up to a year or so. So I've seen something about uh, the USA. I think what I loved the most about the USA was uh, Denver, Colorado. Yeah, don't ask me why, but I just like that place a lot more than uh, New York City. Uh, but I found regular work life unfulfilling. So yeah, someone found my channel today. No, I haven't met Jason K yet. I don't really follow. Uh, I have heard of him. Yeah. I saw him on Twitter X once. Yeah. Love watching your posts. Thank you very much. So I've had a bit of an unhappy childhood. I've made videos about that on my YouTube channel. I think there's a few videos that I still have up there. If you want to watch those, my older podcast videos, but it has led me to kind of disconnect from my society, the Netherlands. And because of it, I've been able to reflect on my milieu 
from the outsider's perspective. That's how I have felt for a long time in my life, as the outsider, right? I didn't belong anywhere. And then I began seeing the bigger picture. I began seeing through one after the other conspiracy like 9-11, the Kennedy assassination, you know, even questioning our timeline, you know, our history. And it turns out that the victors really do write our history. In my mid-30s, I was homeless for about 18 months. I survived by moving between dozens of hostels in Eastern Europe mostly, sleeping in bunk beds and rooms shared with 4 to 20 other people. Out of shame, I pretended to be a digital nomad. I told people I was going to do a trip around the world. Effectively, I did travel around Europe a lot. I started in uh, Southern Europe and I snaked my way all the way up to uh, Iceland, eventually through Finland and Poland and Bulgaria and so on. So I really got to see a lot of, uh, of our Europe, right? Because as a teenager, I had already seen Western Europe with my parents. We've done a lot of trips uh, to Spain and Portugal, for example, usually by, uh, by caravan car, we would drive there, right? And Italy and so on. So I'd seen Western Europe a lot, but I hadn't seen Eastern Europe yet. So I went traveling there. But really, I was, a, I was a bum. I didn't have a home of my own. I didn't have a place to rent even. I couldn't afford rent for a while. So homelessness taught me a lot about discipline. I didn't touch a drop of alcohol and I couldn't afford fast food anyway. So in a way, the experience, it fixed me. I, was, I went looking for myself and I found myself. And I learned that all I really needed could fit in a single backpack. I felt liberated from the burdens of economic life and it was also the best time of my life you know what astonished me the most is that perfect strangers were often easier to talk to than so-called friends so i turned out to be sort of an anti-materialist and you know, looking for spiritual growth and on my long hikes through europe's wilderness such as uh sweden's kungsleden and across Norway's Hardanger Vida, eventually it, it, the, the experiences there renewed my soul. <laughs> my hiking trips formed the basis for my novel, Behold the Wanderer. You can find my books on, uh, on Amazon, uh, in which I wage a personal war on scientific atheism. Maybe I should pause here because I remember hiking down the Chekcha Pass in northern Sweden. Chekcha Pass, yeah. Uh, and it's... It and you go down the uh, go down a mountain slope, the highest point of the uh, of the of the hiking trip, which takes about two weeks to complete the northern half. The full the full hike is like a month. I did the I did the northern half, and I come down into this valley overlooking the valley. And my socks were wet, right? So I take my socks off and so on. And it's it's just a few degrees about above freezing. It was still very cold, but no clouds. Right? Blue sky. The sun was out. And the sun hit my face and the sun, you know, uh, warmed up my socks a little bit. So I dried my socks for a moment, just overlooking this massive valley. And it was massive. And then there's, there's, there's water, streams of water everywhere, right? And there's this tiny little wooden log cabin all the way in the distance, which is my destination. I'm going to go to that log cabin, right? Because uh, you can spend the night there. And that is when I felt that, it's the first time in my life I felt like I'm not alone in a sense, in a religious sense, like I feel like maybe there is a God, you know, because I was, I was raised somewhat atheistic because my parents, I was baptized Roman Catholic, but my parents were probably also Roman Catholic, but they, they had lost their faith by the time I was 10 years old. So my father started talking to me about Charles Darwin and so on. And that's very interesting, all that, but I was not raised religiously. So 
I had no connection to the church, for example. We, we would never go to the church, maybe once a year or so for Christmas, and eventually we didn't even go at all. So I felt there was something missing in my life, and, and a large part of my personal development has been this very slow uh, development of a re religious sensation that, you know, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe there is a God watching over me, right? So you'll find a lot of this in my books that I wrote, uh, Revival of the West and Behold the Wanderer, Eternal Struggle, where I take on the scientific worldview because I was also, as a teenager, indoctrinated in the uh, scientific worldview. So I began deconstructing the truths of our scientific worldview, which my high school science curriculum had indoctrinated, indoctrinated me to adopt. I debunked this rigid belief in fixed constants and immutable laws in my book, Eternal Struggle. And the book also offers some logical arguments proving that our universe couldn't have come from nothing as a physical place, but rather that it must have been born as a thinking mind. Well, the reasoning for this you'll find in the book, it's, it's too much to get into that right now. Uh, so I captured my early political beliefs in the book Revival of the West in which I break down the idea of open society. That's the idea of Henry Bergson um, and then George Soros. And there's one more I can't remember. That's why I wrote the book, uh, but that's okay. So, but I've also read a lot of books, right? So of the, of the books I've read, a few stand out that really influenced my thinking. These would be books like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, Ernst Jünger's book, The Forest Passage, and Martin Heidegger's What is Called Thinking. So Heidegger has been uh, a very great influence. Um, he warned in one of his speeches that the earth was going to turn into a giant gas station. And he feared that people would forget how to think for themselves. And that's something that is very dear to me. And from Heidegger, I learned that our perceptions are more imagined than they seem. So having been a wandering sage for too long, it was time for me to return to society. And from 2019 on, I began practicing speaking and started doing speeches. At first on YouTube as a, as a podcast and later on TikTok uh, because TikTok offers, offers me a, a much greater reach. Uh, someone tags me about mass migration and who's paying all these people to come and politicians allowing it. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a great conspiracy going on here. If I want to answer this question briefly, um, there, I think they're robbing the, the Western middle classes and using that money to replace us with, uh, the, the mass of the mass of the people coming out of the Islamic world and the African world, and partly also from India because they have too many children. That doesn't mean Europe can absorb this. Europe is overpopulated. We, got, we have 700 million or 740 million people on the European continent, and it's just way overpopulated. Europe, Western Europe, Northwestern Europe is one of the most densely populated places in the world. In fact, recently I found out that the Netherlands is the most populated country in the world with over 420 people per square kilometer. Compare that to the US. Uh, the USA has about 34 people per square kilometer. But of course, the U.S. has very dense cities like New York and you have uh, Chicago and so on. Of course, of course, the cities are always very densely populated, but you have so much more land in between, right? Yeah, we can be proud of who we are. Yeah. 
So going forward, I want to make Europe independent again from globalism. And I want to spend the rest of my life contributing to rebuilding Europe's leadership and perhaps, well, definitely play a role in it myself. And then there's another question. Like, how do you view the shift from competence and merit-based systems to other forms of societal organization in terms of their impact on the sustainability of complex systems? Um, so in most countries around the world, positions of power are handed down by family members. So those societies quickly stall because more competent people are kept out. The West was unique in the sense that we promoted our best instead of merely our cousins. We were aristocratic. And a people's destiny is determined by its competency at achieving its goals. Switching away from competency-based hierarchies in the West will most certainly bring about societal collapse. Take South Africa. It has a population of 60 million people, but only about 7 million taxpayers while over 20 million people receive benefits there. So this cannot last and it will not last. We need to prepare for the logical outcome for, you know, for what comes next. Electricity blackouts, shortages of potable water, derailed trains, planes dropping from the sky, you know, think of Boeing. Adding insult to injury, I suspect that the immigrants and the minorities are going to blame us for these things. When it does come crashing down, they're going to blame us for it. Right? They will likely blame Westerners for the collapse, whilst our globalist friends will keep pushing for more wars abroad because it's profitable, bankrupting the state in the process, because it's profitable for them, but of course, at the expense of the, of the middle class. On the upside, in that scenario of collapse, I know that our peoples will come together again under the banner of our shared faith. This 21st century will be tough, but the next century, I foresee, will be a century of inward progress, all right, culminating into an age of new dominance during the years 2200 to 2500. I come to these numbers based off of uh, comparative history. If you look at history, you look at how the West developed, it's very likely that we are going to get another golden age, so to speak. So we have a lot to look forward to. So... Am I thinking of joining the Trump campaign as a junior admin? No, I live in Europe, so. Or are you thinking of joining it? Oh, well, go ahead, you know. So do you think Europe will eventually actually take control? Yes, I do believe uh, the United States has become uh, something that is like a kamikaze pilot trying to crash itself into Russia. And the kamikaze pilot is not going to survive that. So I think the USA is going to find out that they cannot defeat Russia and China. And then what? Well, they'll be bankrupted, entirely bankrupted. And I think the U.S. is headed toward becoming a, a low-wage labor center, like a third world. And that China is going to use American cheap labor for their factories. Yeah, the roles are going to reverse. And for Europe, this means that Europe will have to reinvent itself as a cultural leader without the backing of the USA. I really think this is going to happen now. Another question, it's like, do you believe that a system where different moral standards are applied to insiders versus outsiders and where economic elites may exploit the broader populace undermines social cohesion and development? 
It certainly does, right? Uh, I find it crucial that we in the West keep treating each other equally, uh, meaning our people, but that we make ourselves aware of this fact that outsiders will still treat us like dirt. And that includes unassimilated minorities and immigrants among us who still live by their own moral standards. You see this in the Netherlands where even fifth generation immigrants are really the same as they were in their own home countries. They did not really turn into us at all. Lots of people maybe mistakenly believe that, oh, immigrants coming to the West, they have no culture. When they arrive, they become like us. They're just like us. But this isn't true. They bring their own culture, their own heuristics, their own way of life and religion. And these things don't change at all. And often they never change. Like the Europeans who got to North America didn't turn into Native Americans, did they? Did, meaning they didn't turn into Indians living in teepees and so on. It didn't happen, right? So you got to be aware of that. Uh, let us no longer be fooled then neither by pleas nor threats. The people who live by a dual morality system may find it more appealing to do business with people from an equality based morality such as ours. This was in fact one more reason why the Europeans became wealthy before colonialism. So many people in my comments on TikTok tell me that they think that Europe only got rich because of colonialism, but actually colonialism was able to happen because Europeans were already rich because they were trading along the Hansa cities, along the Mediterranean during the Roman age, for example. The Romans were obviously very wealthy compared to the Central Africans a thousand years later, you know? So it's not true that well, colonialism made us rich. We were rich and that's why we could afford colonialism. So an Arab trader from North Africa could get a better deal from a European who treated him equally than from his own tribesmen who treat unrelated men as dirt. This is really true. The same holds true for morally suspect elites who look to exploit our middle class and lower classes. In India, there's a saying that goes, the tears of strangers are just water. For this reason, predatory elites will find it hard to tax Indians and likewise Arabs, Africans and Chinese people. If these elites can get better deals from the morally more forgiving European type middle class, they will prefer doing business with us. We just need to be aware that they do not have the same morals as do, that we do. Historically, Europe's small feudal kingdoms were able to generate greater tax flows from the Europeans than Chinese emperors were from their, uh, were able to extract from their vast empires. And so small European standing armies have long been able to withstand more populous enemies, uh, such as Leonidas against the, purple, against the Persians at Thermopylae. It will be no different in the future. Yeah. Do you believe in a, in a racial or ethnic destiny designed by evolution, perhaps IQ? I don't know what is the precise difference between race and ethnicity you know ethnic groups would be like uh dutch people are, like indigenous dutch people are an ethnic group but within the within the netherlands you have multiple ethnic groups already of course yeah uh, i think it's going to be more ethnic right but we can see our race as more abstract version of our family you know it's like larger than life really for most people, it will be ethnicity and it will be like that for us too, you know, tribal, ethnicity and so on. Our, our tribes in Europe, of course, fuse together often to form nations. In the Netherlands, you have several places that are still named after their tribes that used to live there, such as um, uh, Twente or something. There's, there's some words that are relating to places and provinces in the Netherlands that still betray the original tribes who used to live there. 
uh, the Canifates and so on, Canemerland. And, and that is what I think nations are. Nations are already collections of ethnicities. They formed out of, the, they grew out of these ethnicities. And so I think that is just what it is. Ethnicity, nation, and race. Those are varying dimensions of kind of the same concept. Yeah. Okay, someone says that the Moors made us rich, but that's absolutely not true. And I'm going to block you because I just do not tolerate these people who come up with completely fictional versions of reality. Like, go away, you know? Greetings from Orania. Oh, that's interesting. Someone said that some, <laughs> from South Africa, you know? Uh, do you think America is now a gynocentric society where they worship women and ethnics? Uh, it's becoming that way, yeah. Uh, not in the countryside, of course. The Republican rednecks, as, as, as they call them. No, they're not gynocentric, but the cities are like that, yeah. It's uh, it's ruled by women. Who's in charge of your uh, military strategy? You know, it's actually Victoria Newland, the wife of Robert Kagan, who was the uh, architect of the Iraq war. She has a dual citizenship between Israel and the USA, and she basically calls the shots in terms of uh, fighting Russia. It's insane, you know. So I'm actually reading a, a interview question. Someone wanted to do a written interview with me. And so I'm going to go through the questions while I will also uh, pause to uh, uh, answer your uh, answer your questions. Akacha says uh, nations are not necessarily tied to an area. That's right, yeah. So a nation is more like a people, yeah. Uh, but the people can move around, technically, yeah. Not anymore. Nowadays, it will be difficult to find free land because that's what you want. You want empty land for yourself, right? We don't want to immigrate we don't want to send white people to China as immigrants, do we? Do you want to do that? Like send 20 million white Germans to Shanghai as immigrants? I don't think we want to do that. No, we want to have a land of our own with our own culture, right? We don't want to be uh, minorities in someone else's culture. I would consider that completely insane. That's why I can't really understand why immigrants are coming to us and they want to be minorities among us. Why do you want to do this? You know, why did you come here? You know, this is weird. So in the context of maintaining high competence levels within populations, how do you relate to the concept of affirmative action amidst the challenges faced by technologically advanced societies? My answer is that in the USA, the stereotypical highly competent 50-year-old white man uh, is being replaced by diversity hires. But to what end? It makes sense only if you are a parasite trying to switch hosts. You may call that affirmative action. Indeed, the Western ruling elites are switching from Europeans to, to Africans, Arabs, and Indians simply because they believe they can profit more off of those demographics. So the new paradigm is quantity over quality. They used to make a lot of money over the qualitatively, qualitatively gifted Europeans, right? and they're switching to the, more, the, the broader quantity of people that can be supplied by Africans and Arabs and so on, and Indian people and Asian people. But the competency crisis is really a profit crisis for the Western elite. When I once pitched a cryptocurrency project to ING bank managers in Amsterdam in early 2010, 2013, they told me it might help with financial inclusion. But by financial inclusion, they meant trapping Africans in mortgage schemes or by tying Indians to Western bank accounts and payment systems. Diversity is really another word for debt slavery. They want to capture your uh, your your labor, basically. 
U.S. billionaires such as Mark Cuban are waging war on competency in the USA, partly because men like Cuban are racist, they hate white people, and partly because they don't understand the concept of competence. They think that as long as there is a thing called the middle class, there will be competent people willing to serve the rich. But they are ignoring the reality that this middle class has been dumbed down and impoverished. The elites have effectively gutted their most competent servant class. It's not going to come back. Affirmative action serves to integrate new demographics into the Western economies. Black Africa now has a potentially greater market value for Hollywood movies than white Europe. And so while Hollywood studios will want to see more black actors in big budget productions to capture the black audiences in Africa. So Africans didn't need to buy TV as the Europeans had done. The Africans went straight to cell phones. And so a black Cleopatra, no matter how historically inaccurate, appealed tremendously to the African ego. Uh, for your information, North Africans and East Africans are actually Semitic and Arab type peoples. They're not Sub-Saharans, but you know, I don't want to talk. I, I have spoken about this topic of the Black Cleopatra and so on, the Black Hercules and the Black King King Charles or whatever, uh, the Black Queen Elizabeth. You know, I've spoken about this a lot last year on TikTok, and the general tendency is that people living in Central Africa seem to have a totally fictional, fictionalized version of, of European history, where they think they were the original Europeans. It's just ludicrous, but I don't know how to deal with that. When you falsify history like that, it might never go away anymore. And that means we Europeans need to start preserving our, our history books and our archaeological finds, digitize them and store them in vaults in ice caves in Iceland or Norway where they can be preserved for posterity because there may it's possible that there may come several hundreds of years or several thousands of years even where our history will be, com will be completely trampled upon and, and, and erased really but we will need to find a way to get it back so that our distant ancestors uh, no descendants our, our descendants far away in the future will be able to discover the truth again. And I think that's very important that we put effort into this. We, we cannot just throw our culture and our history away just because some people are so deluded, you know? Uh, yeah, so the only civilization they the Africans built was built in Hollywood. I read somewhere that historians are aware of 21 different civilizations in throughout human history, and none of them were built by sub-Saharan black Africans. So, you know, maybe that upsets them, but it's just how it is. You know, you know I don't know, how would we deal with it if we found out that we had never built a civilization or something, right? Uh, maybe we would just be humbled and accept it at some point. Okay, we have a lot of work to do, but they, they are not humbled. They are very, very, uh, their egos are very, very big, right? Okay, it's hard to deal with them. Uh, what do you think of global warming? Uh, will it be helpful or harmful? Well, you know, we play out the scenarios. If there is global warming, then we will be able to move to the sub-Arctic regions, such as Greenland or uh, northern Scandinavia, northern Alaska, or Canada, and so on, uh, Siberia. 
and, and Antarctica, those places will all become habitable and we should be the first to go there then in that case. If it stays the way it is, then we stay in Europe. And if, if things get colder, which is what I want, I wish things would get colder, then we will all be, uh, we will be, we'll be, we will be able to naturally curb mass immigration into Europe. Because if Europe gets cold, the cost of heating will be impossible. We will not be able to heat Europe if the temperatures would drop by five degrees Celsius or so. It will be impossible to have so many people here, but that might actually be a, a fantastic situation for us to reboot our culture and to defend our culture using father winter to defend ourselves is my my wish and my hope so i'm going to answer more questions from the interview that someone asked me to do so how critical is competent leadership in avoiding the collapse of advanced societies and can you elaborate on the consequences of its absence in terms of leadership, yeah, our present leaders are highly competent at making their rich handlers richer because the politicians we have, they work for the elites, right? But we may need to take a few steps back and figure out the purpose of our advanced societies. If our leadership only leads to overconsumption and overpopulation, we may need to focus on totally different outcomes, such as spiritual satisfaction. This is what I feel is so lacking in our modern societies, spiritual satisfaction. So far, the West has spearheaded modern infrastructure and technology. And especially in terms of transportation, we have, and we have been entirely responsible for bringing people together. Without the fossil fuel transportation methods of the 20th century that we invented, cars, trains, planes, there would not have been this level of mass immigration today. Uh, without central heating systems, we would never have been able to house so many millions of people in places like Stockholm, Paris, or New York City. Notice here the duality of competence. Although technological competence benefits Western peoples financially, it also makes non-Western peoples dependent on our solutions. It makes us, the slaves, who have to work to carry the burden of maintaining a society while very large numbers of others receive the benefits. The old white man's burden has become a white woman's nanny state. A breakdown of either Western or East Asian technological prowess today must lead to a large-scale population collapse in the third world because they depend on our technology. So far, Africa does not really have uh, an industrial base like China. China learned from the West to build a technological base, but Africa has not. And, and without a technological base, they will not be able to maintain their number. So if, if either Asia or Europe collapses, uh, Africa you know, will have to send hundreds and hundreds of millions of people out of their continent, but to where? If Europe collapses, Europe will not be able to absorb them. So. How much longer then can we keep absorbing less competent peoples before we cannot, before it comes crashing down? The purpose of Western leadership, therefore, should not be to maximize third world populations as we have actually been doing through development age, aid, or even to feed the poor and so on, but to help find spiritual fulfillment for ourselves. We have a lack of purpose today. What is the purpose of, Europe, of Europe today? You know, we need to throw abstract ideals of equity, inclusion, and diversity out the window. Someone says I look better. Okay, I didn't know I looked bad. Uh, let me see if I can answer some of your questions. Great job, man. Yeah, thank you very much. 
Okay, any good books you recommend or other sources to read? Yeah, I mentioned at the start of this, I mentioned like uh, The Forest Passage or uh, what is called Thinking by Martin Heidegger. That was an interesting little book. Yeah. Thoughts on Otto von Bismarck? Yeah, he's my great historical hero, the unifier of Germany. He wanted diplomatic ties with Russia and he was already building uh, railroads through Iraq to link Germany with the Silk Road network. So he was thinking far ahead, but then uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II took over. Basically, uh, he did the opposite of what von Bismarck wanted. Kaiser Wilhelm II, he started building a uh, uh, German navy and so on. Uh, and that's how eventually the First World War and Second World War started. You know? Is race and IQ connected? It seems to be so, yeah. It seems to be connected. So I, I don't really find that very interesting though but it's just how it is you know okay question what is the purpose of high technology in a technocracy a technocracy is a uh, is a political system where they use technology to rule the people thinking they always say that technology will liberate you but i'm going to explain that the opposite enslavement of course is also possible so by the 1950s the u.s population represented five percent of the world and was consuming 50% of the energy produced globally. But what they don't tell you is that the US American men were also producing 90% of the world's exports. It was American productivity that generated the world's wealth. However, if everyone else had started consuming what Americans were consuming, our earth would have died by 1960. So Western elites needed a way to oppress the rest of the world without stirring revolts. They place their bets on technocracy in order to create a global caste system as they do in India today, but with digital passports that restrict people's mobility and wealth. So the whole idea of, of digital passports and actually the vaccine passports were only a uh, excuse to introduce global passports, right? For global citizens. It is, it is meant to restrict people in certain castes and to keep you there so you can there will be no more upward mo mobility in the future of the globalists that's what i'm trying to say so technology can be used to both oppress and liberate people at the same time uh, imagine it this way so instead of allowing people to go on actual holidays global elites now want to offer people those fake vr goggles like uh, apple vision pro and go on a vacation trip in your in your visor so that that is a way to oppress you so they they call it freedom because you can go wherever you want and sleep around in a fake virtual world right in the fake virtual world you can have all the sex you want but it's not real it's fake right and so it's liberation and oppression at the same time so just imagine all those boys wasting their lives away playing computer games imagine what might happen if they started acting out their adventures in the real world you know, you can go if you play games like Skyrim, you can go on adventures, right? Imagine you would demand of the real world that such adventures should be accessible to you. Imagine all these young men demanding adventures. The world would be too small. Computer games both liberated young men while enslaving them behind their computers. Sixty percent of NASA is not from Iranian, Iranian origin. You know, if you if you stay, say things like that, these delusional things, you're just going to get blocked. You know, it's just weird. So the dual use of high tech is often the very purpose. 
So interesting stuff. All right. I don't know though. Okay. So what societal shifts prompted actions like the removal of self-checkout machines, reflecting on the concept of technocracy? So wherever people need to work with technology, there is a minimum intelligence requirement, right? So a society built by a population with an average IQ of 100 cannot be taken over and maintained by a population with an average IQ of 85. So if the average IQ of the white people was around 100, and recent research confirmed this again in 2023, December 2023, last year, there was a research by Brian Pesta et al. who confirmed once again that um, he was looking at people living in Britain. The white Britons had an IQ average of 100. And then every other race came in second and after. Even Asians from China had an average IQ of 98, below that of the, of the native white Britons. Uh, and so what happens if you change the intelligence, the overall intelligence of a demographic. Well, some things are going to break down. You won't be able to do everything anymore, right? So that's what Walmart found out after they installed self-checkout machines in certain low IQ neighborhoods. But even smart people have trouble using these machines. So Boeing too has found out that you can't just outsource random high IQ work to diversity hires overseas. Uh, its planes have literally been, been dropping from the sky as a result, causing a lot of investor damage. I doubt Boeing will ever recover. I'm sure our ruling elites are betting on AI to overcome such impediments. So you import less intelligent people en masse, right? But at the same time, you think, oh, artificial intelligence and smart cities will solve all those problems. No, they won't. No, they won't. It only postpones the collapse, but will not avoid it. So we make cities smarter, but stacking technology on top of technology merely to help low IQ people survive creates exponential tech world. Yeah, you, you create tech world. What you are doing is you are taking people with the intelligence of hunter gatherers, which is usually around 60 or so, IQ 60, 65. You bring them over to a big city like New York, and all of a sudden you find out that they can't really live in a place like that. So you try to make the city smarter so that less intelligent people can survive in them. And that is a very big problem because it creates exponential tech bloat. Eventually, that means the technology cannot be maintained any longer. It becomes too complex. And uh, the very smart people who were able to build it, eventually they die, take their knowledge to the grave. And the new generations who are able to maintain it, they don't know how to fix it. They don't know how to upgrade it anymore. It's too complicated. That's real. It's not a joke. You know, there's simply no escape from the need for human competence. I haven't even mentioned the impersonal catastrophe that are self-check-in hotels. Have you ever done this? You check into a hotel and there's no one there and you have to like get your key card yourself. The stupid will revolt against technology by refusing to interact with it. But the smart people, they will revolt against technology by refusing to be dehumanized by it any longer until, of course, the robots decide they will no longer tolerate human disobedience. Uh, someone says, thank you for all your work. You know, you are speaking the truth to most people who are too afraid to say it. Yeah, yeah self-checkouts were supposed to be more profitable because you don't have to hire the uh, too many. Uh... This is interesting, isn't it? Look at what Biden is doing. He's mass importing millions and millions and millions of people. But at the same time, you're trying to automate everything away. So then what do you need all these people for? If there is no job and there are no jobs in the US, what kind of jobs do these people have? Turns out, so, you know the, all those jobs that Joe Biden said he created? All of those jobs were part-time jobs. 
meaning they're the the Uber drivers and then the, I call them uh, food delivery bunnies. You know, those bunny hoppers who have, the ones on their bicycles and so on with their with the food in their backpacks. You know, food delivery people. That that is weird because it means there is a class of people who can still afford to order food delivery. I don't do that because it's just stupid. I'm not gonna pay thirty sorry thirty dollars to have food delivered when I could just make it myself from the supermarket for like four dollars. So I'm not somebody who spends money on food delivery people. But there's a class of people in this in the Western world who apparently can afford to you know have food delivered like five days a week. Oh wow, you know. How much longer before that class runs out of money? And then what? Then those bunny hoppers, the food delivery people, they won't be hired. They can't be hired anymore and they have no other skills. So you're looking at a slave economy that is temporary. It will take a few years and then it's over. That, that, that whole constellation, that condition will end when the middle class can no longer afford to order food delivery. Then all those millions and millions of food delivery people that you brought into the country can no longer be employed and they have no other skills that they could do porn yeah good luck with that you know 20 dollar tips <laughs> yeah no not not me the faa is having a huge competency crisis yeah i imagine that you know this is what happens when you hire people based on the color of your skin like when you actually hire people based on the color of their skin and you're not looking at their competency or you're picking the ones who barely graduated but you're not hiring the ones who excelled see what you're doing you're overall you're lowering lowering the competency of your of your work pool uh, and and people if you work for a company and your manager your senior manager is replaced by a diversity hire and after a few days you notice that person does not know what they're doing are you going to keep working for somebody who is clearly incompetent all right you might, for the sake of your job and your income, you might stick with that for a while, but as soon as you can get out of there, you're going to get out of there, right? So the competent, the actual competent people, the, yeah, they're going to leave. So question, how do mass immigration patterns affect a nation's ability for technological innovation and, and adaptability? There's no point in denying IQ differences, and they won't go away by calling IQ a colonial construct. A man claiming to have an IQ of 75 made this very revealing video. It's on YouTube. You should Google on YouTube uh, uh, IQ 75 man interview or something like that. So he claims that he cannot grasp fractions such as fill a third of a cup with water. He doesn't know how to do this. He doesn't know how to operate the defrost option on a microwave. So what do we do now? Do we sell this low IQ demographic or a kitchen robot to help them use microwaves? Um, do you see where, where, what this means? You need smart people to live in smart cities. And if you don't have them, you won't be able to do smart cities. So while European settler colonialism benefited the host demographics by transferring wealth and technology and medicine and science and so on to them, the squatter colonialism of the reverse migrations back into our countries only benefits subsidized programs at the expense of real progress. What I'm saying is that mass immigration is an actual burden to progress. It slows things down. There are things that you can no longer do because your society has become more and more complex to maintain it. The cost of maintaining it has gone up. And at some point, you just can't go any further. So mass migration has become a race to the bottom for all. And Europe, the European aristocratic ideals have been diluted with calls for lowered standards, merely to appease hostile groups. 
The mass migrations, which are largely uncontrollable, also shift the problem of purposelessness to the West from the Third World. How are we supposed to entertain hundreds of millions of immigrants who cannot be employed? Oh, give them a universal basic income. Yeah, paid for by whom? By productive people. Right? You may have noticed that farm animals also receive universal basic feed. I foresee that there's not going to be a great reset, as the World Economic Forum would like, but what will happen is going to be more akin to Microsoft Windows' blue screen of death, a sudden end to progress. And the great reboot, which will be necessary, shall be our opportunity to reformat society. So why do leftists believe that the strengths of diversity outweigh the negatives? What exactly are the strengths of diversity? They're purely economic. Uh, it's just for the economy. If you need uh, a larger body of low, low cost laborers, then just import them from Africa, right? Or if you need uh, delivery people for your food, then get them from India or whatever. And so that's all it is. It's just pure economics, but it cannot last. It doesn't add to the growth capacity of a nation. It merely temporarily increases profits. It's all short-term thinking, really. There are no real visionaries left in power in the West, at least. <clears throat> right, so it has nearly a reversed progress in the aerospace industry. It's, it's come to a halt and it's going back down, yeah. Right, they're not living in the real world. We will merge with AI, yeah. I looked into the Neuralink thing, and that's uh, something I will never do. But in the end, if you're an accountant with a Neuralink that gives you the ability to perfectly do accounting, then of course, everyone else will have to get the implant. And so you see uh, a rift here is that there's going to be a movement of people who will do that and a large number of people, I hope, who will not. So then you will have the difference between synthetics and real people as they have in that movie Blade Runner where you have these fake cyborgs and real people. That's going to be a whole new new game of discrimination there. Yeah, Neuralink, precursor to the mark. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think it is uh, an evil idea. Yeah, Katya says there's going to be a, a division. Yeah, parallel society. Yeah, definitely. We'll have horrible long-term effects. Yeah. Yeah, imagine having to get an upgrade, a hardware upgrade, and you need a new surgery in your brain. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to have a brain damage when these surgeries go wrong, you know? So how can European nations preserve their cultural identities amidst the challenges of globalization? So culture is a public measure of how well a people are doing. U.S. authorities have been toppling a large number of white men's statues recently, uh, and that is the clearest signal that said authorities have every intention to also purge white people next. By fighting to preserve our culture, by fighting to keep your statues on their pedestals, we may preserve our people, in fact, but it will have to be a physical fight. You will have to win this fight in the real world. So under globalism, ethno-nationalist tendencies have become a private matter almost, but they have by no means disappeared. Once the Soviet Union was dissolved, for example, its peoples almost instantly returned to Christianity. The white peoples. I know, they, I know that Russia is a federation. They have Chechnya and Dagestan where people are Muslim, right? But the, the Christian whites who live in the northwest of Russia, right? They returned to Christianity after the Soviet collapsed. 
And so history tells us that beneath the veneer of the most terrifying globalism, a people's heart continues to beat, and ours will too. In terms of the matter of uh, protecting ourselves, we should demand legal respect for European cultures in the same manner that Muslims and Jews call for laws against Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. There should be laws against anti-Europeanism, also anti-Christianism, even laws against anti-patriarchism, right? Not just in our own countries, but worldwide. We should lobby for it. We should become intolerant of attacks on our well-being. Wherever one flag of ours is taken down, we should hoist two, two back up. Wherever we trade with foreign nations, the promotion of our culture and religion should be included in the counterparty's obligations. That may sound strange, but in fact, that is what Arab oil states have been doing, demanding of the Europeans since the Strasbourg resolutions of 1975. So in 1973, there was an oil crisis which um, forced countries like the Netherlands and Germany to stop selling uh, gasoline at the pump. So nobody could drive a car anymore for a couple of days. And two years later, they came up with the Strasbourg resolutions of 1975, which stipulated that the European, the precursor to the European Union had to start promoting Islamic culture and had to start accepting immigration in exchange for oil. So they've been blackmailing us literally for almost 50, 49 years now, almost, yeah. It's time for us to start playing tit for tat. We can't just keep, keep, keep can't just allow people to keep uh, blackmailing us like that, you know? How did you become so outspoken? I suppose I've always been this way, but when I was younger, I was really, really punished for it by the teachers and the parents and so on. But I've always been like this, yeah. It's just my nature. Uh... I, I get into a lot of trouble for it because, you know, people are, you are nice people, but there's a lot of people get really angry at me for the things that I say. I just have, I learned, I really had to learn to deal with that, with that, that angry backlash, but that's just how it is, you know. The Orthodox Church is growing in Russia and in the USA. I'm not sure about Europe. I don't think in Europe, but I think religion in Europe has had its low point. Anti-feminism. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the FBI might be watching all of us. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're an FBI agent. Yeah, you know, I'm not worried about that because, you know, I feel that it's most important that I get my thoughts across in the It's not like I insult people. I don't normally use the N word, for example, right? Uh, I'm not out to insult people, but still a lot of things I say will come across uh, as insulting. People will take it very personally, and that's just how it is, you know? Yeah, we're proud of our heritage, heritage yeah. No, I mean, should be, you know. All right, I'm going to answer this question. Like, who is Jesus to you? What is your opinion of, of him? The way I understand Christianity nowadays is that before Christianity, the European paganisms, they were afraid of death because every winter the cold comes, the crops die, your cattle dies, and then eventually, of course, the old people die and then people die. So they were always afraid of death. Christianity, through the story of Christ, shows us how to face death without fear, how to overcome the fear of death. And I think, to me, that is how I interpret Christianity, the story of Christ, is to learn to, to do what you believe is right, regardless of people attacking you for it. You even if they threaten you with torture and death, you overcome the fear and you can stay calm under this and you simply go ahead and do what you think is right. That's how I interpret it. 
So how do European moral systems and cooperative frameworks contrast with those in other parts of the world and what impact does this have on societal development? Most of the world is despotic, matriarchal, socialistic, whereas Europeans are naturally capitalistic and patriarchal, but also more naive. Europeans have a guilt-based morality, i.e. Christianity, the original sin, primordial sin, whereas the rest of the world has a shame-based culture. So Europeans worry more about whether or not what we did was right or wrong, but other people worry more about looking good in the eyes of their families. Our dietary histories have shaped modern politics. Europeans have been the largest group of people to descend from pastoralists. There are, sorry, there are other groups of pastoralists around the world, also in Central West Africa and Central West Saudi Arabia, but they're small groups. Europeans are the largest groups of people who descended from pastoralists eating meat and dairy products for thousands of years. And uh, the rest of the world was largely evolved from grain and rice farmers. And the political implications are intense because of the way you have to cooperate with each other. Cattle herding is a capitalist system that can be done by a single person and his cousin and, a, and a, a guard dog, a shepherd dog. So these are male alliances. Grain farming can be done by individual families, but they will need to cooperate during harvest season, such as in northern China, they still do it that way. And rice cultivation, however, is a community effort. So rice farmers have to ask all of their neighbors for permission to change the flows of water before they can harvest. And so the life of a rice farmer is actually humiliatingly slavish. And yet rice feeds the most number of people on earth, over 5 billion people. Most of them live in the Southeast Asia, around China. So it's China, Thailand, you know, those kinds of countries, right? Uh, and so grain cultures have produced socialism. Rice cultures have produced communism, dominant in East Asia. And only dairy cultures produce the patriarchal capitalist systems that are predominant in Europe. So the vegan movement's attack on meat is actually a way to undermine the European peoples and their social systems. <clears throat> I need a sip. Right, Nordics were not lactose intolerant. I don't know exactly how it happened, but at some point we were able to digest milk. Uh, if you can tolerate milk, you can get access to the animal protein and fats and the nutrients from milk. And that gives you a energy boost. Actually, it helps children, uh, children's bodies grow and develop uh, better, which makes sense because that's what mother's milk also is to a baby, of course, right? You know, a low GDP, GDP is preferable to a multiracial society. I don't, I don't know exactly how that works, but maybe we are. We are descended from the Yamnaya tribe, but keep in mind there were already our other ancestors were already living in Europe. It's not like we're exclusively Yamnaya. We, we, you, have, you have to imagine there were already white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Europeans living in Europe, and then the Yamnaya came, and they mixed with us, right? Uh, in different degrees. Uh, I suppose East Europeans, the Slavic people, are actually more Yamnaya than the Western Europeans, so it's different, right? It, it's very different. Uh, but keep in mind, there were already, you know, white looking blonde people living in Europe anyway. So it's not like we came from outside. We were also already here. I myself, I did a DNA test and I'm like 55% Germanic and 45% Celtic. And my Celtic ancestry is actually from the southwest of England. I hadn't really had not expected that. 
So I have, I have ancestors who were living in the southwest of England 2000 years ago, before the Roman age. So it's really peculiar. <clears throat> so, I, so, so I'm mixed race. <laughs> Nowadays, I carry this as a badge of pride. I'm mixed race too. Are you mixed race? You're like African-American? Oh, really? I'm also mixed race. I'm Kelto-Germanic. <laughs> I'm Celtic-Germanic. I'm also mixed race. You know, just screw them over, you know? Oh, really? Celtic DNA is bound to meat and dairy. We suffer from celiac disease. Okay, interesting. I don't know. I don't think I have that condition, though. Oh, in the Netherlands, there's uh, there's something going on. Namely, the uh, there is supposed to be a new government formed, and they actually, someone actually killed it. They killed the process. Oh, great. So Geert Wilders might not become the prime minister then. Who knows, huh? So another question, because I'm going through a series of questions that somebody did a written interview with me. So I'm just going to go over my answers. So question, what are the broader implications of mass immigration on societal progress and cohesion within European, Western European countries? So immigrants coming to the West of Europe are almost exclusively from socialistic, communistic or despotic regimes. They often bring brutally fundamentalist religious beliefs with them including an intolerance of outsiders, of people who are not family, right? So this is, this is interesting. You know when they call us racist because we see white people as a race, but they are actually familialists. They only care about their own families, their brothers and their cousins and so on. They don't care about anybody outside of that. And they call us racist because we do care about strangers. Weird, huh? <clears throat> And so since the globalists couldn't turn European people into communists, they are happily replacing us with communistic imports. I think that's what this is all about in the end. They really don't want this rebellious white middle class people. They want us gone and dead. I really believe that. Yeah. It's easier to enslave and control people who evolved under despotism. So I believe the global elites love the idea of communism so much because it creates a class distinction between the crowd La Foule uh, and the, the irresponsible children and the elite, the responsible parents who know exactly what to do, right? And there are scientists and there are pol political experts, right? So it has, of course, nothing to do with elevating the working classes, only insofar that it helps destroy the more independent middle class. The success of mass immigration to Western Europe, I say success between quotes, right? Depends on our ability to house so many people peacefully. And it depends on the flow of money and resources to afford such populations. I foresee a breakdown of both conditions. Our infrastructure may deteriorate rather unexpectedly due to the aforementioned competency crisis. Who will be left behind to care to repair what breaks down once the most competent men have been replaced with diversity hires? They're going to do something else. Changes in the global economy may send shockwaves through Europe. European nations are already planning to send billions and billions of euros to fund the Ukraine war effort against Russia. And this war, I think, may actually bankrupt Germany's economy. And that's the end of Europe. Germany is our economic backbone. Without it, we're going to hell. Without the money to afford multiculturalism, the whole diversity experiment will fall apart into rivaling bands fighting for power. This has already happened many times before. It's how the Roman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and many others all came to their ends. The cost of managing diversity has become unbearable. 
So imagine a Europe without uh, fuel to heat homes. Half a billion people would have to seek refuge outside of Europe in the winter because it, they would freeze to death if they stayed. So in the end, I believe Europeans will find each other again through their shared religious history. In times of great upheaval, a more religious movement may rise to dominance to restore order. That's what I'm focusing on. Uh, post to Spotify. Yeah, this this will be a podcast episode. I will it will automatically go to my Spotify. It's called the Great Johannes Podcast. If you can find it there. Let me see. See if I can answer some questions there. Or there. Yeah. All right. Next question. So, what's the general sentiment among the Dutch population regarding the current levels of mass immigration? The Dutch hold two opinions on most matters, a private one and a public one. Publicly, we must say that we support diversity and mass immigration because we need immigrants to, to offset our aging population. But at private family meetings, we unload about them. Our populations aren't aging naturally, it's by design. Native Dutch people subconsciously realize that giving birth to the surplus children needed for the economy just means sending them to work in the factories. So we don't want to do that. In order to keep our families relatively wealthy, we instead prefer having fewer children. We push our children into the higher education system, into the universities. And then we willingly import masses of people from third world countries to work in our factories and to sweep the streets and to be our food delivery people. In my view, this is the Dutch people's best kept secret. We all secretly know that the immigrants coming to work for us are our slaves. At least for as long as we manage to keep them happy with marijuana and red light districts and religious freedom. Still, a slave revolt may be brewing under the leadership of certain agitators. You know that Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, he uh, is trying to start a new political party in Germany for Muslims. Weird, huh? Yeah. You will see a lot of this everywhere in Europe. Of course, when minorities become a larger group, they will have their own political parties and they become their own bloc. At some point, they may win power, as in real, for real, right? We need to prepare for these things. Why is nobody preparing for it? And that's why I'm here to speak to you, to get you ready to start preparing for things, you know? So there's a reason why predominantly working class natives voted for Geert Wilder's PVV party in the Netherlands, the party for freedom, since most immigrants have integrated into the lower classes, and that's because they came from the lower classes, not because of discrimination. Our own working classes have been hit the hardest with the benefits, quote unquote, of diversity. In the big cities of Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and Utrecht, the native working people have been all but replaced. There is this dynamic between immigration benefiting the rich and the increased pushback from the native poor who are losing out on work, life and family. So the benefactors of immigration call the native losers racist. The well-to-do can afford not to have to live among immigrants. And so the people who most rely on immigration for their financial well-being are the ones least likely to be confronted with the social disadvantages of diversity. I remember how my white colleagues at an Amsterdam co-working space were all employed, all, all of them employed a third world house cleaner for less than the legal minimum wage. <clears throat> Yet none of them thought of themselves as racist. They thought they were progressives. And no wonder then that such progressive souls despise people like me who wanted to close the borders because then they would have to pay full fee for a proper housekeeper rather than 
get a cheap one from the third world. Normal people expect their country to be a place worthy of raising children, but the Netherlands has been turned into an industrial zone, a business site, while a greedy overclass is too addicted to cheap house cleaners to give up on the diversity experiment. Right. What do you think about Nick Fuentes and the America First movement? I haven't. I know. I know who Nick Fuentes is, but I haven't really watched him that much. So. Get this man, Johannes, an axe and a helmet now. <laughs> He'll save us, yeah. That would be a great fun thing to do, yeah. I absurdly do not want to lose my ways, yeah. For, for culturalism, yeah. That's right, right. Hearing, hearing someone speak so plainly is a cathartic experience, okay. Can you provide insights into the recent events in Holland, including the farmers' protest and their broader societal implications? Okay, in recent years, it has come to light that our entire political class has been working for the World Economic Forum, including our Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. They are literally on the WEF's payroll. The people were only informed many years after the fact. The plan for the Netherlands now involves fusing with Northern Belgium, Flanders, and parts of Western Germany in order to create the tri-state city. Our country is supposed to be turned into a New York City by the North Sea. All for profit, of course, and the lack of vision among our elites is frightening. Our king, the king of the Netherlands, Willem Alexander, he increasingly acts as a social media influencer whose job has been, sorry, <clears throat> has been reduced to promoting the World Economic Forum's plans, such as transgenderism, diversity, and veganism, his wife, Queen Maxima, was seen at Davos promoting vaccination passports for global citizens. The farmers' protests have a lot to do with the meat processing industry. Dutch farmers are the world's largest exporter of real meat, mostly to the rest of Europe. And I think that American billionaires such as Bill Gates may be trying to cannibalize this market. They tried the vegan Beyond Meat, and now they're trying lab-grown meat, fake meat, and if they can drive European pastoralists out of business, they can steal that market and move the profits, profits to the USA. European industry is being pillaged. Another reason why European governments are cracking down on meat uh, consumption is, of course, the relation to capitalism and freedom. As I explained uh, before, uh, Europeans descend from pastoralists and their lifestyle is inherently patriarchal, capitalistic and individualistic. Globalist forces may be trying to neutralize the meat and dairy life of Europeans, which is capitalism, replacing it with either socialism, grain-based lifestyles, or with communism, rice-based lifestyles. So far, the Dutch farmers have only been protesting up and down the streets, which I think is a tremendous waste of time. If the farmers don't actually want to overthrow their governments, they will lose. Our governments cannot be reasoned with. They are globalists. They have to be deposed nationalistic people shouldn't try to be kind to globalists globalism can only be destroyed with force in your view what are the primary threats to european cultural identity today and how should they be addressed so i think the biggest threats to europe are islam veganism the gender confusion mass immigration communism or in other words the whole globalist package Islam in Europe proves, its, proves itself a highly intolerant ideology, intolerant of any form of criticism or perceived criticism. 
And the only sensible recourse for Europeans is to match that kind of intolerance. We too have to become very assertive about our survival. We have to stop being intolerant and become intolerant. To counter the mass immigrations, Europeans should begin repatriating their kinsmen from the colonies like USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so on. Instead of bringing in random immigrants, we should bring back our own people. And my reasoning for this is that historically speaking, no colony ever survived the death of its mother civilization. Meaning if Europe dies, the former colonies are unlikely to survive on their own. You need a strong mother continent like Europe to continue providing the cultural backing to the descendants now living around the world. We need to make it clear that Europe, therefore, is the most important ideal to fight for. We should offer young European couples, and meaning also European type people who want to come back to Europe, free housing so that they can start having families again. To counter baseless materialism, however, we need to inculcate people with a renewed religious fervor. Globalists in the end are not as powerful as they are perceived. Looking at what globalists seem to fear the most, I think we Europeans need to become independent. We need to work with Russian resources diplomatically, rebuild our religion, our aristocracy, and our patriarchal meat and dairy way of life. There are only two genders, you know? You rock, yeah, I'm on the right side of history, I hope so, yeah. And then let me go over here. I'm going to skip some things because usually I'll talk for an hour or so and then I wrap it up. Uh, what are you currently focused? So here, this is the last section. What am I currently focused on and how can individuals engage with me or follow my work? You can go to www.jmk.info, which is my Substack newsletter. Or of course, my TikTok at The Great Johannes, my YouTube channel at The Great Johannes, same name. And I'm on Twitter, X, uh, at JohannesMKX. Um, I'm actually getting ready to start doing public speeches. I'm starting to look for some kind of organization that can offer me some support, uh, support platform in Europe so I can start doing speeches <clears throat> as the real opposition. I will not be controlled opposition, I will be the uncontrolled position. Very dangerous, man might cost me my life, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I want to get out there now with my beliefs and my ideas, start doing speeches. I will primarily write my speeches myself at first, or maybe in the distant future, I could work with speech writers. But yeah, I definitely want to start doing speeches to rally the people of Europe, the farmers, everybody, the middle class, get it through to people that this is that time in our history where we made a stand together. So I would like to rebuild Europe as a sort of religious Sparta, a warrior state that cannot be stormed. Europeans will learn to fend for themselves again, regardless of what anyone else says. The time of subservience to globalism is over. Uh, and I'm looking for organizations in Europe that can offer me a platform, as I said. So uh, let's see. Uh, no, I don't have a WordPress. I have a Substack at www jmk.info yeah so i don't want to get into national politics of the netherlands or so i want to do something on the european stage and i figured i start with something kind of spiritual or religious um sort of to, to just find a way whatever way that we can kind of bind europeans together that we act together as one group for once in our history and stand up and rise up against globalism that is just harming all of us, right? 
let me see. Have you heard of Jonathan Bowden? Think so, yeah. I've heard some of his speeches, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying everything everybody else is thinking. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for now. I will be doing this every Tuesday, same time, 8 p.m. West European time. Uh, I'll see you then. See you next time. Oh, this episode will not be uploaded right away because uh, this is actually an interview someone did with me, a written interview. I'm going to uh, post it after they post it. Then I'll put this. You'll, you'll see it uh, on my podcast, uh, The Great Johannes Podcast on YouTube. Uh, well, see you later and then see you next week. <laughs>